Hey folks, a uh, couple of quick announcements before I get into what I think turned out to be a pretty crackerjack short show. I know I'm running late on the next long Iran episode. It's recorded and most of the audio is edited, um, and I'm only about four hours of work away. But I had a family reunion this past weekend, and I'm writing a pretty neat little piece about History Channel's ancient aliens for the all, uh, and I haven't been able to finish this show yet. I'm traveling again next week, but I think I can have it to you guys pretty soon. The second thing is that I've now got at least one $5 supporter on Patreon. And remember, we're at patreon.com slash democracy. So thanks to you, Ernie Piper IV, I'm going to be producing a monthly news and analysis show just for people on Patreon. Uh, if that sounds interesting to you, go check out the Patreon page and see what it's worth. I've got goals there that'll make that news and analysis show bi-monthly and then weekly. And any amount of money, even if it's not $5, even if it's 50 cents, allows me to get the historical shows to you faster and more regularly. Finally, Rob Morris called me up for a kind of surprise collaboration today, and we had a really sharp, tight, and this time not too lengthy conversation. Politico had put out an article that was not just uncritical, but very nearly gung-ho about Trump administration plans for regime change in Iran, and we tore it up pretty good between the two of us. I'll have that conversation up probably by the end of the week, and you can check it out right now, as always, on Rob's YouTube channel, The More Freedom Foundation. All right, we're here talking about Mitch McConnell, the healthcare bill, the erosion of norms, and the end of our political system as we know it. I'm John Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
So it's been a rough few months of administration, regardless of your party affiliation, and it looks as though it'll only get rougher. My own political leanings are no kind of secret, but even the most die-hard Trump supporters would probably agree that FBI investigations of multiple members of the executive, the firings and resignations in disgrace of staff from the campaign and then the White House, the apparent inability to get both the president and his cabinet heads on the same page for even one day, and the attempt and failure in policies like the Muslim ban to rule by fiat are not the kinds of things that you'd find in a hale and hearty republic. But for all that, Donald J. Trump is no longer the scariest or the most damaging game in town. Mitch McConnell has taken over that mantle with the Senate's health care bill, and it has more to do with norms than premiums or pre-existing conditions. Now, we talked only a couple of weeks ago about norms, and in fact, here's me talking about that right now. A norm is a standard or pattern especially of social behavior that is typical or expected of a group. That is, it's any non-legal, although not necessarily unwritten, rule of behavior. A norm of American business, for example, is that you show up to meetings early, whereas a norm of Mexican business is generally that you don't. A norm of American stores is that you get into and don't cut into line. A norm of American presidential elections is that you don't do pretty much everything that our current president did from insulting the press to engaging with white supremacists on Twitter. I think the best writing about norms on the internet has gone down at the sift in the Countdown to Augustus series of posts. And if you take anything from this particular podcast, it's that you ought to go read the sift, which is at weeklysift.com, and that link will be on the page for this show, this Monday and every Monday. The guy who writes the sift, a guy named Doug Muter, makes the point that the last hundred years before the Roman Republic broke down and became the Roman Empire weren't characterized by a breakdown in the rule of law, per se, but in the norms that had up to that point governed Roman society. So why are these norm things important? Because norms of behavior, social interaction, and especially government, keep society on track much more so than laws do. To return to an example from that other show, those Mexican and American norms about punctuality let entire countries coordinate themselves without any recourse to law, in the U.S. showing up at the very least on time, and in Mexico allowing for a more flexible window. And when those norms break down, or in my case as a Peace Corps volunteer in Mexico, they mix, your meetings go straight to hell. Like I mentioned or maybe demonstrated in that previous show, Doug Muter's my and most historians' favorite historical examples about normative erosion come from the Roman Republic's last century before its democracy lost out to monarchy. And most of you are probably familiar with some aspect of that story, especially the more exciting ones, like Marius's legionary reforms or Sulla's dictatorship or the civil wars. Someone that probably many fewer of you know about is Publius Clodius Pulcher, although Dan Carlin gives him his due in Hardcore History. I don't want to get too technical here, but within the Roman system of government, there was an official elected by and from the ranks of the common people, the plebs or plebeians. These guys were known as the tribunes and, subject to an oath to represent the common people, had some special powers, including physical inviolability, a veto in the Senate, and the ability to propose new legislation directly to the people. While there were many famous tribunes, the office itself wasn't the star of the show until Pulcher, largely because of its restriction to the plebeian class, which was less likely to be scheming than the aristocratic senatorial one, and because of the sacred oath that the tribunes had to swear to represent the people and their interests. 
Well, in 59 BC, the aristocrat Publius Clodius Pulcher found himself unable, within the structure of Roman government, to do what he wanted, which was to attack his old enemy Cicero and otherwise accrue power to himself. So Pulcher used a maneuver that was against all the norms of Roman society, but not, apparently, illegal, which was to get himself adopted by a much younger man, one of his plebeian supporters. After the adoption, Pulcher was no longer legally a senatorial aristocrat, but a common man, and he used his great wealth to get himself elected tribune. I won't get into the details of what he did afterwards, but Pulcher then used the special powers of the tribunate to get up to all sorts of shenanigans that would normally never have flown in the Senate. What he'd done to get elected and what he did after that wasn't always in conflict with the letter of Roman law, but did violate its spirit. Pulcher's transgressions made it easier for his contemporaries to use laws in ways that conflicted with the traditional, or normative, ways in which they had always been used in the past, and, indeed, to break those laws outright, as did one of Pulcher's enemies, who defied the physical sanctity of the Tribune and killed Pulcher on the Appian Way. Although what the guy had done was much less dramatic than crossing the Rubicon, Pulcher may have contributed more and more directly to the breakdown of Roman democracy than many of the more better-known characters. The great drama of the last century or so of Roman republicanism shortens in the telling, and in retrospect, it can seem like those centuries-old institutions collapsed almost overnight. And in fact, Tacitus covers the whole period in his annals in one sentence. Quote, The despotisms of Cinna and Sulla were brief. The rule of Pompeius and of Crassus soon yielded before Caesar. The arms of Lepidus and Antonius before Augustus who, when the world was wearied by civil strife, subjected it to empire under the title of prince." Unquote. But in reality, it was a slow buildup of small changes, small concessions to expedience, small lapses of morality and watchfulness, which built up over decades and tore the edifice of Roman republicanism down. And President Trump, as sensational as much of what some of us believe he might be up to is, is not yet a pulcher. Trump is an ugly manifestation of the most ignorant, base, and tribal aspects of our society. But what he's done so far, while it's immoral and probably also illegal, is smaller scale. Hiring his daughter and her husband for important jobs, using the office of the president to enrich himself through his hotels in Mar-a-Lago, and lying compulsively are all bad and probably also impeachable offenses. And that's not to mention anything that's going on with Comey. And if he was left to do that stuff long enough, Trump could certainly do us real damage. Mexicans, for example, have been watching their politicians act like Donald Trump for so long that the entire society has fallen into total cynicism, either ignoring politics altogether or paying attention explicitly in order to participate in corruption. Mexicans have lost faith in their government and in the ability of the common man to affect it. And the result has been a continuing spiral of worse and worse government that's hard to see ending anywhere but revolution or out-and-out -out tyranny. So all of what Trump is doing is bad, and if it's allowed to continue, really bad, especially when you consider that Washington told us that, quote, Remember that for the efficient management of common interests in a country so extensive as ours, a government of as much vigor as is consistent with the perfect security of liberty is indispensable and that liberty itself will find in such a government its surest guardian." Unquote. But it's not Donald Trump and his sycophants at the White House who are following in the footsteps of Publius Clodius Pulcher. That distinction belongs to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans marching in lockstep with him, who are making a much more direct attack on our democracy. So I think this new Senate health care bill will hurt people if it passes, and I think there are probably some good arguments to be made about the effect that that'll have on voting patterns, 
or what it means that one party is trying to literally kill some of the constituents of the other. But I'm getting at something different here, and that's the process that McConnell has been using first to write and now to pass the bill. For anybody who hasn't had the time to keep up with this, the Senate's health care bill was written by 13 men behind closed doors who did not consult with any of their constituents, but who did take input from insurance company executives and lobbyists. And after writing the bill in secret, Mitch McConnell, who, by the way, is the Senate Majority Leader, released it last Thursday and announced that it would go to the floor in less than two weeks and without debate or committee hearings. Now, you might not, or you might have friends who don't, see anything necessarily wrong with that. You might even agree with Mitch McConnell when he says that we've debated healthcare so much since 2009 that we don't even need to do so with this bill. But while McConnell is apparently within his rights as the majority leader, what he's doing right now might constitute the most serious breach of norms in the United States since the Civil War. And I'm 100% serious about this. The Senate's rulebook is unique, as is the House's, and they've both been shaped in different ways by history and circumstance since 1789. One example there is the filibuster, which wasn't part of the original plans for senatorial procedure, but which grew out of rules which allowed one member of the Senate to hold the floor indefinitely. But despite their particularities and peculiarities, the House and Senate rules both grew out of parliamentary common law the practices that had evolved over the whole life of the British Parliament, and which the colonial assemblies and the Continental and Constitutional Congresses had adopted. Robert's Rules of Order, which is pretty much the accepted manual of parliamentary procedure in the United States today, has some eloquent things to say at the outset about the purpose and spirit of parliamentary law. Quote, Ultimately, it is the majority taking part in the assembly who decide the general will but only following upon the opportunity for a deliberative process of full and free discussion. Only two-thirds or more of those present and voting may deny a minority or any member the right of such discussion. In this connection, there is an underlying assumption of a right that exists, even though it may not always be prudent or helpful for it to be exercised. Each individual or subgroup has the right to make the maximum effort to have his her or its position declared the will of the assembly to the extent that can be tolerated in the interests of the entire body. Another important principle is that, as a protection against instability, arising, for example, from such factors as slight variations in attendance, the requirements for changing a previous action are greater than those for taking the action in the first place. Fundamentally, under the rules of parliamentary law, a deliberative body is a free agent, free to do what it wants with the greatest measure of protection to itself and of consideration for the rights of its members. The application of parliamentary law is the best method yet devised to enable assemblies of any size, with due regard for every member's opinion, to arrive at the general will on the maximum number of questions of varying complexity in a minimum amount of time, and under all kinds of internal climate, ranging from total harmony to hardened or impassioned division of opinion." Unquote. So something of real importance there is that parliamentary common law and the rule books of the American Congress recognize and are meant to protect the rights of the minority. Now that doesn't mean there are no losers, and it's a fact of even very healthy democracies and assemblies that important votes can and do come down to a bare majority of 50% plus one. The minority's first and most important right is not to not lose or to win, but to be heard. A government or an assembly in which the majority works in secret and acts without debate is something, but it is not a democracy. Now, you might wonder what the point of a public debate on this bill would be, because after all, hasn't everyone already picked sides? 
But very few senators, if any, are actually healthcare or insurance experts, and extended debate allows them time to both get to know the bill and to develop their arguments for and against it. And when those debates take place in the public sphere, they allow the American people to educate themselves in turn and to express their feelings to their senators. This is how a real democracy works. When McConnell cuts the Democrats out of the process, he cuts us all out, liberal and conservative. Some folks might argue that we're a representative democracy, that we elected these guys and now we just ought to get out of the way until the next election. But in the first place, the government of the United States has never operated in a vacuum. Since its earliest days, visitors like Tocqueville have been blown away by average Americans' eagerness to organize and to lobby their politicians constantly and on their own behalves, rather than relying on corporations or on parties. And secondly, a system in which the people's whole political power was a single vote every two or four years, and in which the president and the Congress conspired with industry to run the country without the public's knowledge or input, would be an elective autocracy more than a democracy. Something that I want to be clear about here, that I think is both hard and absolutely necessary to understand, is that the kind of thing that Mitch McConnell is pulling right now is not bipartisan. This is not a case of, well, both parties do it. The most common arguments against that position that I'm taking right now come from the way that the Democrats passed the ACA, Obamacare, by a bare majority, and from Harry Reid eliminating the filibuster, the quote-unquote nuclear option, for senatorial appointments. As for the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, the vote did come down along party lines. But that's okay. Sometimes that happens. And true to the spirit of parliamentary law, the Democrats, despite having majorities in both houses, recognized and respected the rights of the large Republican minority and the people that they represented. In the Senate, the ACA spent 60 hours in health committee hearings and eight days in the finance committee. It took on hundreds of amendments, some of them from Republicans, and spent 25 days in debate in front of the full Senate. That bill received exactly the kind of slow scrutiny that it deserved, even if the final vote ended up being narrow. McConnell, by contrast, is going to use a tie in the Senate and a tie-breaking vote from the vice president, not just to pass the bill, but to shut down debate, something that traditionally takes a greater than two-thirds majority. He's trying to take you and me out of the process. When he nixed the filibuster in those particular circumstances, Democratic Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid did indeed do away with the tradition. But we need to recognize that the filibuster itself, which was named, pointedly, after Spanish pirates and military adventurers, was an unintended consequence of Senate rules, which went against their spirit. What I mean there is that it protected not the minority's recognized right to be heard, but a totally unprecedented and unwarranted ability to prevent the majority from governing at all. Accordingly, filibusters were extremely rare in the Senate, right up until Republicans in the 1990s made them routine. Reid took the so-called nuclear option because Senate Republicans were using the letter of senatorial rules in the form of the filibuster to violate their spirit and to rob the majority of its right in that case, to hire people to run the government. It might be divisive or hard to hear, but this is a Republican problem and not a Democratic one. You might hate the ACA or other laws that the Democrats have passed, but they debated those laws in public and that is how democracy works. And if you want to get rid of those laws, you can do that, but you should be doing it democratically. And what's happening this week in the Senate is not. If I've got any conservative listeners left at this point, I'm sure that'll make them want to tune right out. But I don't have a problem with you being conservative. 
The issue is that while the average American liberal has a whole host of problems with the Democratic Party, and often enough abstains from elections, the right in the United States is characterized by blind loyalty to party. And even if my one or two conservative listeners are the exception, statistics, including Donald Trump's rock-solid 38%, bear me out on that. The founding fathers that the GOP purports to revere feared few things more than blind loyalty to party. George Washington, in his farewell address, said, quote, Factions put in the place of the delegated will of the nation the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community. And, according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans, digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. However parties may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people, and to usurp for themselves the reins of government destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries has perpetrated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and even more permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual and sooner or later the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty." Unquote. Washington was making a warning out of a prediction. Faction had always in the past arisen with the consequences that he outlined, and he took much of that prediction from one of the Founding Fathers' virtual handbooks, Polybius's History of the Roman Republic and specifically its sixth book, which describes how democracy arises and degenerates. Quote, And as long as any in a democracy survive who lived under the previous regime, they regard their present constitution as a blessing, and hold equality and freedom as of the utmost value. But as soon as a new generation has arisen, and the democracy has descended to their children's children, long association weakens their value for equality and freedom, and some seek to become more powerful than the ordinary citizen and the most liable to this temptation are the rich. So when they begin to be fond of office and find themselves unable to obtain it by their own unassisted efforts and their own merits, they ruin their estates while enticing and corrupting the common people in every possible way. By which means when, in their senseless mania for reputation, they have made the populace ready and greedy to receive bribes, the virtue of democracy is destroyed and it is transformed into a government of violence and the strong hand. For the mob, habituated to feed at the expense of others, and to have its hopes of livelihood and the property of its neighbors, as soon as it has got a leader sufficiently ambitious and daring, being excluded by poverty from the suites of civil honors, produces a reign of mere violence. Then come tumultuous assemblies, massacres, banishments, redivisions of land, until, losing all trace of civilization, it has once more found a master and a despot. This is the regular cycle of constitutional revolutions and the natural order in which constitutions change, are transformed, and return again to their original stage. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. 
During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.